Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. This is a reading from Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 1 through 23. And I'll note before I read that Jeremiah prophesied concerning the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire. And the people of the Babylonian Empire were sometimes also called Chaldeans. You'll hear both in this reading, Chaldeans and Babylon. Now, Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jukal, son of Shilamiah, and Pashur, son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. He was saying, Thus says the Lord, Those who stay in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But those who go out to the Chaldeans shall live. They shall have their lives as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, This city shall surely be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, This man ought to be put to death because he's discouraging the soldiers who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Here he is, he's in your hands, for the king is powerless against you. So they took Jeremiah and threw him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. Now, there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, a eunuch in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. The king happened to be sitting at the Benjamin gate, so Ebed-Melech left the king's house and spoke to the king. My lord king, these men have acted wickedly in all they did to the prophet Jeremiah by throwing him into the cistern to die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in this city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take three men with you from here and pull the prophet Jeremiah up from the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe of the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Just put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up by the ropes and pulled him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. King Zedekiah sent for the prophet Jeremiah and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I have something to ask you. Don't hide anything from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, you'll put me to death, won't you? And if I give you advice, you won't listen to me. So King Zedekiah swore an oath in secret to Jeremiah. 
as the Lord lives who gave us our lives, I will not put you to death or hand you over to these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will only surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be handed over to the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, for I might be handed over to them, and they would abuse me. Jeremiah said, That will not happen. Just obey the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall go well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you are determined not to surrender, this is what the Lord has shown me, a vision of all the women remaining in the house of the king of Judah being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and saying, your trusted friends have seduced you and have overcome you. Now that your feet are stuck in the mud, they desert you. All your wives and your children shall be led out to the Chaldeans and you yourself shall not escape from their hand but shall be seized by the king of Babylon and this city shall be burned with fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There is a content consideration for this sermon. There will be a mention of self-harm and suicide in this opening story. Way back in the summer of 2015, in the time before, when people still got together over coffee and still talked in person about what new thing God might be doing, when Galileo Church was but two years old, we got an idea. Roz and I hatched it together at AB Coffee in Mansfield. Roz was a PhD student in social work at UTA a black, lesbian, cisgender woman with a deep well of compassion and expertise in the trauma of growing up gay and Christian. She and I were becoming aware that the church should take some responsibility for repairing what the church broke. That is, we should expend some effort to help very young people, high schoolers even, navigate their faith and sexuality with peer support and mentorship and pastoral care. We asked for the help of Travis, a PhD student in pastoral theology at TCU, a white, straight, cisgender man with a deep well of compassion and expertise in the trauma of sexual assault and abuse. Roz and Travis and I started figuring out how to put together a non-religious but religion-affirming peer support group for older teenagers and very young adults who could help each other through the process of figuring out their sexual orientation or gender identity and living into that discovery. We called the group It Gets Better after Dan Savage's project in which LGBTQ adults assure young queer people that while it may be super hard right at first, it does get better and you won't suffer forever the way you might be suffering right now. And we wanted to offer this group, especially to kids in the Mansfield Independent School District here in Texas. Our church was still meeting in Mansfield at that time, and we had it on good authority that Mansfield is an especially hard place to come out. 
we felt like it was a gap that we could and should help fill. Long story short, we took our idea to the head of Mansfield's counseling department, the person who oversees all the school counselors in all of Mansfield's schools, and we asked, what's the protocol? What resources do you share when kids in your schools show up in the counselor's office and say, I think I might be gay? She said, we don't say anything about that. If they seem very upset, we advise them to talk to their parents and seek counseling for their mental health. We said, well, do you have a pamphlet, a website, any kind of resource to share with them about their LGBTQ identity formation? She said, no, we do not share any information about LGBTQ identity formation. We said, what about the reality that LGBTQ teenagers who lack institutional support are many times more likely to be bullied in school and to miss school for fear of being bullied? She said, officially, we don't know anything about that. We said, but what about the reality that LGBTQ teens who lack adult support are many times more likely to harm themselves, even unto death by suicide, and that having even one safe adult in whom they can confide reduces that risk significantly. That's when she got up from her desk, walked around us to her office door, and closed it. She came back to her desk, sat down, leaned in, and said in a low voice, we do not officially recognize suicide as a risk to students in Mansfield ISD. Our counseling department does not have permission from the Board of Trustees to run suicide prevention programming in any of our schools, not for any of our students, not for LGBTQ students. That's officially not a concern in Mansfield. Let us pause here to acknowledge that last week, a Mansfield High School student died by suicide, another death of despair in these desperate days. That was not the first time I had gotten a whiff of that particular suburb's penchant for denial, no matter the cost, no matter to whom, and it would not be the last. In the years since then, I have taken to calling this phenomenon the myth of Mansfield exceptionalism. The myth of Mansfield exceptionalism has been on display in the efforts by the Mansfield Equality Coalition, a community organizing group that Galileo Church heads up, to get protections for sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression entered into district policies that protect staff and students from discrimination, harassment, and bullying. For months and months in 2018 and 2019, we entered public comments at every monthly meeting of the school board, carefully citing statistics from the CDC, from the HRC, from the WHO, from the Trevor Project, and more about bullying and harassment related to poor academic performance, about self-harm and suicide as real consequences to LGBTQ adolescents who understand that the system does not have their back, and about the impact on morale among staff members who know the system will chew them up and spit them out if they dare to reveal themselves 
as queer. At one meeting with the school board president about 18 months into that struggle, after all those months of public comments, after endlessly emailing board members with links to the data, after consistently presenting the rational and historically verifiable case that policy changes at the top are necessary to make possible the softening of human hearts toward each other, we heard the myth articulated again. Statistics about what happens in the United States and even in Texas are not persuasive to us, the school board president said. Mansfield is different. We don't let that kind of negativity into our schools, not here, not in this district, until you present us with specific instances of these problems in Mansfield itself. None of this is going to change our minds. The board was, at that time, being sued by a two-time district-wide teacher of the year who had been suspended for telling her students she was getting married and her fiance was a woman. I'm telling you all this and retelling it to some of you because the myth of Mansfield exceptionalism is far more widespread than Mansfield and far older than 2015. It is the propensity of human beings in every age to use their sense of communal identity as a shield against reality. We collect ourselves into tribes, raise our flag, and tell each other we are special, we are different, and if we stick together in our special difference, we will not succumb to the ills that bring other tribes to their knees. We are Mansfield. We are Texans, we are Americans, we are Democrats, we are white, we are Christians, we are fill in the blank. What we've got is good. It's better than what they who are not us have got. And it can never be taken from us if we squeeze our eyes shut and pretend that the monsters can't see us if we can't see them. And I'm telling you all this because when we take in the broad brush view of the history of our ancestors in faith, we see the folly of this kind of thinking, especially as represented in the prophetic tradition from which we read two long sections today. Last week, we talked about King David and the disintegration of his personal family life as a microcosm of Israel's national devolution having been granted the land and future of God's promise to Father Abraham, Israel began to conceive of itself as a small but mighty empire deserving of more land, more resources, more power over their neighbors. It raised a professional army and taxed the people's labor and land to pay for it. It longed for the status, the respect that wealth and might would bring, the power and the glory forever and ever, and ever. The prophets of the Hebrew Bible, indeed the prophets of Israelite history, were the offset to Israel's national narrative of exceptionalism. If the kings and their armies announced loudly that with God on their side they could never lose, the prophets were in the background 
in the courtyard of the temple, in the gate of the city, in the public square, shaking their heads and warning against the myth of Israel's exceptionalism. You think God will not let you lose, they said, but God holds God's hands open, holding lightly what God has called God's own. Now, it should be said that God's open-handedness could be interpreted at least a couple different ways by different prophets on different days in different seasons. It might be that God opened God's hand to strike in punishment the people of God's choosing who did not walk in God's ways. When they exploited the poor to put more money in the pockets of the wealthy, God was furious. When they forgot their own origins as enslaved people and became ruthless traders of people as resources, God was enraged. When they pretended to be righteous through religious ritual, all while stomping God's justice and mercy like grapes under their feet, God was incensed. And if you got God that mad, the prophets sometimes said, you shouldn't be surprised when God raised up an army under someone else's flag to take you down a peg. Assyria, Babylon, God could use any of these powers to put you in your place. But the prophets had another way of talking about God's open hand. Sometimes they said, see, the world belongs to God, and as such, it's meant to work a certain way where, in fairness, the abundance of the earth is shared amongst all who have need so that everyone is regarded and cared for and loved. And the little ones, the orphans, the widows, the aliens in our land, them most of all. So if we build an economy that tramples the poor and elevates the rich, we're sliding against the grain of God's intentions. And if we slide against the grain of God's intentions, we should not be surprised when we get splinters in our ass. These are the consequences for being so out of sync with what God wants from and for us. Consequences like Assyria, consequences like Babylon. It's not God punishing us, though that's exactly what it feels like. It's just this is the way the world works. It's the logos, the logic, the very word of very God, and our defiance of it is what's causing us pain. You'll note, of course, that the prophets were not beloved for their insistence on telling this kind of truth. They often told it when Israel was at its strongest, feeling good about itself, and then the people would say, as Isaiah notes in chapter 30, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> Tell us how exceptional we are. Tell us how fine everything is. Sometimes, they even tried to disappear the prophets' voices altogether, like that time they dumped Jeremiah into a mostly dry, for now, cistern. Enter Ebed-Melech, a queer black man who is one of the unsung heroes of the Bible, encouraging the weak-minded king to rescue Jeremiah from his slow and horrible demise and listen for a change to his word from the Lord. Thanks be to God for Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch, who found courage in the reality that he had little to lose by telling the truth. What I'm saying is, 
The prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Bible is the strong but spurned counter-testimony to the dominant culture. The minority report among a people who held dear their self-definition as exceptional, as blessed, as close to God's heart, and thus guaranteed God's protection. Taken together, the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, and there are 17 of them, these books ascribed to prophets in the Hebrew Bible, they all testify that God is not interested not willing to be bound to our expectations of what God has to do because of who we are. Now that is not to say that God treats lightly the breakage in God's relationship with our ancestors in faith or with us. One thing I always take away from my engagement with the prophets is how hard God keeps trying sending one messenger after another, one word from the Lord after another, a few hundred years of God-splaining that what God really wants, all God ever really wanted, was for Israel to shine like a lawful good in a sea of chaotic evil. God pledged God's self to Israel in hopes that it would be for all the world a sign of God's goodness, a demonstration of how beautiful life can be when people go with the grain of the good world God made and still loves. God would not give them up. Even with God's hand open, God would speak hard words of truth and soft words of mercy in hopes of coaxing them back into God's heart and forming them further into a shining beacon of hope that would illuminate the possibilities for all peoples, all nations, all God's children the whole world over, if only they would find and follow God's ways. It's really hard to both imagine yourself as a prophetic witness to the world speaking and showing the way God says it should all work and to divest yourself of the temptation to capitalize on that special role, imagining yourself chosen and therefore immune to the folly others are susceptible to. Israel found it quite impossible. And what about us? What about Galileo Church, church? What about the paradox of our own dual reality, that we are both called to speak truth to power, hammering at Mansfield's myth of exceptionalism or white people's myth of exceptionalism or the North American white church's myth of exceptionalism, among other things, and we are meant never to imagine ourselves so special that we are exempt from folly, from self-interest, from unkindness or unfairness or unmercifulness or any other manifestation of unlove, we are meant both to exemplify through our embodiment together what it looks like for God to get more of what God wants, while never imagining that we have figured out 100% of what God wants, much less how to get that. It's aspirational, I've been heard to say about all kinds of things we try around here. We do justice for LGBTQ people, 
Well, it's aspirational. We do real relationship, no bullshit ever? Well, we aim for that. We name high standards, the things we believe God wants from and for us, and then we lean into that without pretending that we've already got there. It's all the prophets said we needed to do. Aim for what God wants, as much of it as you can see, and then point your life together in that direction. God does not wait for us to get it all right all the time. God does wait, Isaiah said, in concurrence with his prophetic brethren through the centuries, to be gracious to us, to show mercy to us, to bring us home to God's heart. But only if we want that. God's hand is open, the prophet said. God's hand is open, just like God's heart. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.